the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, a surprisingly high percentage of people have already had their unemployment claims approved. Denmark relaxes its lockdown measures amid plateauing COVID-19 case numbers. And we break down how the generous payouts from the stimulus bill are already influencing the labor force. I'm Georgie Borman. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hello and welcome back to the 180 cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman, and this is the podcast where we explore how people change their minds and bring some moral and logical clarity out of all of the confusion, especially nowadays. We are going to do some good news, bad news sort of format, and then I'm going to tackle some of the conventional wisdom surrounding the supply chain because we've been told that the supply chain is fine. Supply chain is totally solid, guys, 100% solid, all that essential business, totally great. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that. But let's just get right into it because there is a ton to cover. I feel like there's a lot of valuable information to share with you. So I'm going to do sort of a rapid fire sort of thing. And like I said, there's some good news and some bad news. So I'm going to alternate between them. And hopefully by the time we get to the end of this, you will not have a panic attack. That's my goal. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about. It will top the list. Okay, we're going to start with some good news. ICU hospitalizations are down in California for the first time in a while. That is very good news because California has had a very hard time with this. The ICU hospitalizations, they're down 1.9% from Wednesday's report for a total of just over 1,100 people across the state. So small drop, but still promising news. In New York, 74% of those hospitalized for COVID-19 have been discharged. Three quarters of people have been discharged from the hospital after having COVID-19. Is that news that you hear very often? No, it's not. Only 360 hospitalizations were recorded in New York City over April 7th and 8th which is the latest full data that I have access to at the time of this recording, um, according to nyc.gov. That is way down from the peak of almost 1,400 on March 30th. So 1,400 all the way down to 360 hospitalizations. That's really good news. Of course, you've probably heard that the, the deaths have gone up quite a bit, um, but we know that the, the deaths sort of lag behind the hospitalizations. So that was to be expected. And uh, those should be going down in short order. More good news, uh, as I mentioned in my teaser, 55% of unemployment claims already, or 5.7 million, have already been approved according to Politico. I'm not talking about um, the $600 checks. I am talking about when you apply to, the, to, you, to your state for your state-administered benefits. 
over half of those have already been approved. That is really astonishingly good news. I am shocked, shocked. I thought it would take way longer than this, but not all states are um, equal in terms of the their their workflow and their technology and just how they have everything set up. Um, some states are really having a hard time and lagging behind Texas, especially the phone lines are jammed. The the website keeps crashing. Um, I've been told Florida is really jammed up as well. Washington state still has yet to to set up their enhanced, uh, federally enhanced benefits. Um, so there there's a mixed bag here, but overall 55% is really good. And remember, we were told we had to pass this stimulus bill, the CARES Act, in the middle of the night, basically, and not even really read what's in it because the need was so desperate for the federal government to get money to people. But it turns out that the states seem to be getting money to people faster than the federal government. Now, I think as of today, some people are getting those uh, stimulus checks. They are, but we were told that this was going to be the stopgap between that and the other unemployment benefits that are coming in. So what people like uh, Ben Sass and Mike Lee and Lindsey Graham were saying about this doubling up on top of each other and being more in many cases than what somebody is making was making at their own job, that has turned out to be absolutely 100% the case. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the podcast. But 55%, that's very good news. The typical wait time across the country for getting your employment benefits just you know it pick any time of the year last year or whatever that's two to three weeks so basically that's like it's pretty much right on track with what is usually happening and i suspect of course that that has to do with the high level of automation that many states have uh, put into their um, unemployment claims process all right let's move on to a little bit of bad news by essentially as i say putting a foot on the accelerator of mitigation, as opposed to saying, well, it looks like we may be turning the corner in some areas, and therefore we should pull back. Now's not the time to pull back at all. It's the time to intensify. That was Dr. Fauci on Fox News just the other day. Well, it seems like the state of Vermont has taken Dr. Fauci's direction to heart in pressing the accelerator on mitigation because the fascist idiocrats in Vermont have banned Target, Walmart, and Costco from selling quote-unquote non-essential goods in the store. Bloomberg reporting. They are limiting it to essentially food, fuel, and pharmacy. So the things that you are not allowed to buy in store include anything from the gardening section, no seeds for you, clothes, toys, games, exercise equipment, basically anything that's not food, fuel, or pharmacy. They've now determined that you just shouldn't be allowed to buy those things in store. You know, things that you need to touch and feel and let's say maybe, you know, try on to see if it fits. You know, like we're in the middle of changing seasons and it's getting warmer outside and there are a lot of people who need to buy things in store because, well, first of all, Walmart and Target are basically the only places where you can buy clothes in store right now because they're superstores and they're not closed. And, uh, you know, people need people need to be able to try things on to see if they fit. Okay, so <clears throat> you can get things in curbside pickup, right? 
but there are certain things that you need to be able to try on. So let's just think through this for a second, just just real quick, just a little bit of a thought experiment. If you are not allowed to use the dressing room and you're only allowed to just buy stuff for a curbside pickup, what do you think is going to happen when people bring home their things and find out that a lot of them don't fit right? And let's say probably if you're a normal person, you might buy multiple sizes of something find out which one fits, and then go return the rest later. Because that would be the most, probably if you're hedging your bets, that's the the way to go. So what's going to happen? Now you're going to have people queuing up in the returns line because they bought a bunch of things they didn't know would fit them or not. Congratulations. Congratulations, Vermont. You guys are geniuses. All that social distancing in front of the uh, re- return, return cashier. Oh yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be epic. That line is going to wrap around the store like it is freaking Black Friday. Unbelievable. By the by the way, Vermont has only had about thir- three hundred COVID cases so far. Not deaths, cases. But you know what? We just got to make sure that nobody gets to have fun. If you have a birthday, plum out of luck. No toys for you. Sorry, your kid's having a birthday coming up. No, no toys for you. Can't can't run to the store and grab something for your kid. You need new shoes because kids grow out of shoes very quickly. Let's say they need some some sandals. I I know I'm going on with this is because I'm I think that this is such a horrible idea. I cannot. Sometimes you just I cannot believe the level of idiocy. And I have been paying attention to politics for a very long time. I I can't. Okay. Moving on, speaking of buying things, there are some things that you don't have to see and touch in person to know that they are great because their reputation precedes them, not least of which are MyPillow products. MyPillow is sponsoring this episode. It's a stressful time right now, so do not go on Amazon and stress yourself out and become fatigued by sorting through hundreds and hundreds of pictures and conflicting reviews about pillows and sheets only to roll the dice on some discount product made in China because it's a few dollars cheaper than the other one and isn't that justified and they look the same and just, you know, I'm sure it's probably fine. No, no. Just go to MyPillow.com right now and buy from a great American company who is helping win the fight against COVID-19 by producing thousands of masks for frontline hospital workers. You're like, no big deal. And also happens to make great, durable, comfortable, quality products. Mike Lindell, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants to give you the best night's sleep that you've had since at least before the Rona came to our shore. You can get great discounts on all MyPillow products if you go to MyPillow.com right now and click on the listeners specials. Get deep discounts on MyPillow's mattress toppers, bed sheets, dog beds, so much more. Now for the 180 cast listeners, Mike is offering his best-selling offer that is the buy one, get one free on the standard MyPillow plus free shipping. And in case you had not heard, MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty. I told you, durable. And MyPillow has extended their 60-day money-back guarantee, so orders placed between now and April 30th will have their 60-day money-back guarantee extended through July 1st. 2020. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one, get one free offer on soft, breathable Giza sheets plus free shipping. Enter promo code 180cast 
1-800-506-1-8-0-C-A-S-T or call 800-506-2641 for these fantastic specials. That's 800-506-2641. Use promo code 180CAST and let them know we sent you. Okay, back to a little bit more good news. Okay, Denmark, which was ahead of everybody in terms of initiating a lockdown, they came down hard and fast very early in this pandemic before it was even declared a pandemic. Um, they are starting to relax their social distancing restrictions. The country of 5.6 million people was second behind Italy to lock down the country, though its restrictions aren't as stringent as what most in the U.S. are facing People in Denmark could still go outside. This is according to a Politico article. Um, attend events with fewer than 10 people and get takeaway food and drinks from restaurants and cafes. Schools and daycare are set to reopen April 15th. Their deaths appear to have leveled off at around 15 or 16 a day. And their restrictions are to remain in place for another four weeks. Uh, according to Time magazine... Sweden, similarly, has maintained, well, not exactly similarly, but they're coming to be sort of neck and neck. Sweden has maintained a much more lax um, regime in terms of the social distancing and is getting hammered in the media for their death rate of 8% of confirmed cases. While Sweden's elevated case fatality rate could be a result of its low testing rates compared to its neighbors, this article says experts say Sweden's laissez-faire approach could also be to blame. I found this read this reason article that provides um, a little bit more insight into that. Just think this is good information for you to have. Iceland's response to COVID-19, which features aggressive testing, contact tracing, and quarantines of infected people, but no general lockdown, seems to be working. So in essence, no lockdown, just like Sweden. It's crude case fatality rate known deaths as a share of confirmed cases. It's much lower than the rates in other developed countries, including places where the disease emerged around the same time. So, of course, the amount of uh, the the population that you're testing, the size of that population, and the uh, level of representativeness of that population has a lot to do in terms of um, what your overall quote-unquote crude death rate is going to be. So if you say, oh my gosh, Sweden has a death rate of 8%, they're doing such a horrible job. They're just really being reckless with that. Well, it has a lot to do with how many people you're testing and what kind of people you're testing. If you are only testing people who have symptoms, yeah, your death rate's probably going to be up there. Um, because the, the latest estimates are that somewhere between maybe a quarter and half of all COVID-19 cases are asymptomatic or very, very mild, and those people aren't being tested. So of course, that is going to look much different. And even in the United States, we still do not have an ac accurate picture of what the actual fatality rate is for COVID-19 because we have not done widespread testing. So keep that in mind. On to a little bit more bad news. Some other fascist idiocrats are taking things too far as well. And this is, as a mother, this makes me even more angry than uh, what Vermont's doing. Carillion Clinic in Virginia and Northside Cherokee Hospital in Camden, Georgia, just two among probably others, are no longer letting parents see their babies in the NICU, according to WTV. WBTV and CNN, unless the patient is near death. Okay, I thought we were supposed to do whatever it takes to not separate families. Am I right? Do you remember this? 
We had this whole conversation like two years ago about not separating families no matter what. No matter what. You don't have vaccines. We don't know what uh, diseases you might be carrying. We don't know where you're from. Doesn't matter. We don't separate you from your kids, right? Right? That's the line that, that we've been told from the Democrats and from centrists. And I am very anti-family separation as well. So I thought that this was like a, a central principle, right? That we were all supposed to cling to as a Americans. Unbelievable. Not letting parents see their babies in the NICU. Can you imagine being a mother or a father and having a tiny, very fragile, weak preemie being reeled away from you in a little incubator with the, the plastic walls and seeing this baby being carried away from you and not knowing when you are going to be able to hold your baby next because they won't let you see your own child. This baby could be 28 weeks, 27 weeks, teeny tiny baby that needs his or her mom, not able to see him. And it turns out that all of the scientific evidence, it is overwhelming that for babies to thrive, for premature infants to thrive, they need human contact, contact especially with their mothers. This goes against all available evidence, especially maternal skin-to-skin contact, that it is... I mean, this is essential for helping babies survive. There's literally preemie programs called kangaroo care, as in putting the baby in the pouch, right? Right next to the, right, you know, basically inside the mom, where mothers are with their babies virtually all of the time, having that skin-to-skin contact and creating that bond. And those infants show less infection, better motor skills, uh, better motor and cognitive development, better sleep, less fussiness, better nursing. The list goes on and on and on. And it helps mothers bond with their infants, which is critical for the welfare of both mom and baby. Believe me, I've had two kids. I've been through that stage. I haven't had a, a preemie, but that stage of being able to bond with your infant is incredibly important, especially since preemies require so much more care um, and, and so much diligence in terms of all of the things that need to be done to keep them alive and to help them thrive. This is absolutely criminal, highly ill-advised. I mean, you wonder why moms become anti-vaxxers and won't give birth in hospitals? It's crap like this. It's exactly this sort of thing that drives women away from resources that they most need. Absolutely criminal. Can you even imagine? Moving on to some good news. Hydroxychloroquine, which I'm sure you have heard much about, by all accounts is showing more than just promise, which the, the best of the mainstream media articles are saying that it shows. It is actually showing to be extremely, extremely effective. Um, of course, uh, Kevin McCullough has interviewed uh, a lot of people on his radio show, a lot of doctors who are using this, especially um, Dr. Zelenko, has provided a, a lot of detail about the, the wonders that hydroxychloroquine is doing for his patients. Um, it is proving so effective that French Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron went to visit uh, Dr. Didier Raoul. I might be butchering his last name. But speak French, but the scientist who I don't speak French, but the scientist who first shared um, his his small study on the hydroxychloroquine azithromycin combination um, 
showing 100% recovery for six out of six patients that took that combination. Um, So the French prime minister went to go visit him. He performed a much more robust study of over a thousand patients and says that he has a recovery rate of 92% within eight days, eight days of starting treatment, according to the New York Times. That is fantastic news. Again, that is more than just showing promise. That is a highly, highly effective treatment. And this is despite the media's abominable abominable coverage of the drug, right? You've heard it's untested. It hasn't been proven to be effective. It's poisonous in high doses. Dr. Fauci says there's no strong evidence. The France study only showed it reduced the level of virus detectable. I mean, I saw that in one article and I was like, having read the study, that is a serious misrepresentation of the fact. But it is proving to be extremely valuable. It's a fairly cheap drug. We know a lot about it. The FDA has already um, approved it uh, as an emergency treatment for COVID-19. There are other ongoing studies like the one in New York City, which will give us more information about, which we should be learning about in real time. It doesn't appear that that's happening, but I feel like the public and other doctors deserve to know what's happening in that study in real time. In any case, this is incredibly good news. It's an answered prayer. It's going to save a lot of lives. All right, let us go ahead and move on to interview highlights from last week's episode, my interview with Vince Cable, who is the former MP for Twickenham in London. I talked to him about how he changed his mind on assisted suicide. Did a full we actually did a few one eighty. big change. Left. The light bulb went off. It crystallized for God, me. God just opened it my eyes. Really changed my I mind. changed my mind completely. Yeah, episode 57, I think, was a very valuable interview because... Interviewing legislators is something that I don't get to do very often, and it provides you an interesting view into how people who are responsible for crafting laws change their minds and how people lobby them and attempt to persuade them to get certain laws passed. So I think it is a very valuable addition to the conversation in that regard. So he served uh, in the parliament for a long time. And he used to, of course, be very against assisted suicide, legal assisted suicide. He he talks uh, early on in the podcast about his experience with his mother who who slid into dementia and had a lot of mood changes along the way. in terms of how she felt about life, going from happy to despair and back again, and also his experience with his his wife, who had a terminal illness um, and who was very resilient and very did to carry her life out to its natural con- conclusion and was very much against uh, ending her own life no matter how bad things got. So when advocates for assisted dying his constituents came to him. He said he initially rebuffed these people who came to him for help, but then he started hearing their stories, and that was the first step in changing his mind. He talks specifically about this one condition called motor neuron disease. Take a listen. And not a neuron disease is the one which 
um, keeps coming back. I mean, there aren't very many people with motor neuron disease, but it is an appalling illness in which people are fully mentally aware, uh, but they're gradually losing control of their muscles, uh, including their ability to swallow. Uh, and they, they suffer very, very greatly in the final stages of the illness. Um, and there were those and some others that have been publicized in the press or been part of uh, campaigns or been part of legal actions. And they are very, uh, very compelling. I know that there is this old adage that um, good, good cases uh, don't make good law necessarily, but I, I think there are a sufficient number of compelling cases. A, a common theme in this debate about assisted suicide, of course, is dignity. Like a lot of these uh, medical aid and dying laws are called death death with dignity laws. I think I believe that's what it's called in in Oregon, which has had the practice legalized for I think going on twenty years now. There is uh, this word dignity has. A, a central role in in all of this dignity is being illustrated through these stories you are being um when you hear about people who have terminal illnesses especially and who are are suffering uh greatly usually it, it is the the mental kind of suffering right and that's why there is such an emphasis on dignity instead of an emphasis on quote-unquote um you know helping people get out of their misery and, and escape their pain we have very effective ways to manage pain in western medicine we do a very good job of that I did look into motor neuron disease, and and yes, uh, what he says is is true. Um, but adding to just clarifying a little bit what he means about when he says they suffer greatly toward the end. From what I've read, this is more of a a mental, a mental uh, emotional type of suffering as you lose control um, of your body. Usually, people with motor neuron disease die. Um, in their sleep as their their breathing finally shuts down um, but it is generally not a, a a painful condition so this is mostly this is not about uh, a managing pain so much as it is about dignity that's what the conversation centers on and of course we're talking about a very specific definition of dignity that has been stipulated for this conversation Dignity is is being defined by the the pro assisted suicide side of things as the the absence of any physical debilitation the the absence of anything particularly embarrassing you know your your level of presentableness to the general public you know absence of things like excessive drooling or incontinence or you know, not being able to bathe yourself, uh, things things like this are what people consider undignified. It is a very um, materialistic idea of of what dignity really is, um, because it's mostly centered on what you can do physically and what you can't do physically, and not necessarily who you are as a person. Now, obviously. Um, advocates for these laws believe that they are doing what's best for somebody's autonomy and what they want as an individual. They're they're not um, 
generally speaking, sort of um, trying to wipe out the unfit or anything like that. You know, most of these people, they just want uh, people to be able to make this decision for themselves. Now, whether or not the conversation gets taken over by uh, more sinister types is is another matter. But I think it's very important to recognize here that in terms of convincing people, it's not just the 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 personal stories. Like you know, when I it, did the the interview with Dr. David Gushy, we talked about how he had these personal relationships with people from the LGBT community, and ultimately that's really what led him to believe to advocate for gay marriage and full inclusion of LGBT people in the church. So the the, the personal connections and the the personal illustrations of their stories and putting faces to things is obviously very, very important. But more than that, I think it's important to pick up on the fact that um, there are, are definitions of, of very important words, of very important aspects of morality that are worked into all this and assumed underneath those stories, right? So what we're talking about here is dignity. And when you hear stories about somebody who is um, slowly having their their body uh, waste away um, as they are fully uh, aware of it and losing ability after ability, ability to walk, the ability to chew, the ability to swallow, all of these things, you're looking at it from the perspective of your dignity is based in what you can physically do. And if you don't feel dignified with the fact that you are unable to do so many of these things and you are so dependent on somebody else and you feel bad about that, then that is a a reason for you to be able to end your life prematurely. But after being moved by these stories, of course, um, Vince Cable turned his attention to the the argument about safeguards. And this is really a, a battleground in this debate over assisted suicide. So he's now convinced that the the safeguards are adequate. Here's a little bit of what he said about that. And and, and certainly the the idea that one thing leads automatically to another, there's no logical or, or historical reason to believe that will happen. Now, obviously, if you've listened to this podcast before, um, you know that I disagree with that. But just talking about safeguards in general, um, this this idea that there are safeguards, just that in itself, makes people feel more comfortable with letting people make their own decisions as as the argument is presented. Because safeguards supposedly ensure against coercion and the driving of non-terminally ill people to end their lives. And if you say, okay, well, it's only six, it's only, you know, if you're six months out from your natural death, and it's only if you've had, you know, two doctors who have approved this, and it's only if you've had counseling, um, and A, B, C, and D, then you can go ahead and move on and, and, and do this. And you have to have a a, a waiting period or, or things like that. You know, there are a lot of quote-unquote safeguards that have been put into some of these laws. But that in itself makes people feel a lot more comfortable about that. The debate, of course, 
is not whether or not there should be safeguards for the vast majority of people. The debate is, do those safeguards actually work and how quickly will they be eroded? Now, of course, Vince Cable obviously says he doesn't think that there's any logical or historical reason to believe that there will be a slippery slope, that these safeguards will be um, slowly uh, pulled back one at a time or, or even more or less all at once as more radical people take over the conversation and and push for fewer and fewer safeguards in the name of justice and equality and making sure that everybody has access to their quote-unquote right to die. Um, if you've uh, read much literature or seen much of the news coverage about this argument, you sort of know what I'm talking about. Um, the other thing I found very interesting was part of what gives him confidence that uh, assisted dying should be legal is um, his his faith in the medical community. With this, um, doctors are, are, as a group are most unlikely to want to be compromised by over-permissive legislation um, and act as a generally conservative force. So I, I see no reason why this should continue to escalate. He says that doctors are, are very, very careful about things like that. They don't want to be compromised by permissive legislation, and uh, he is is counting on this to ensure that these safeguards won't be eroded and that they would be followed to AT. And of course, it, to a certain extent, that makes a lot of sense. Doctors are very used to going by very strict guidelines. They've been trained in bioethics in a lot of cases. Well, I think everybody, all doctors have to take some level of of ethics in order to go into practice but there's a, a a faith in in the medical community and i think you see that now more than ever with the covid-19 pandemic um you know there are hashtags like quote unquote you know there are hashtags like listen to the doctors and basically listen to only the doctors um and and anybody else you know just sort of brush whatever they have to say aside because the doctors are the people who have to be right about any issue that um, is medical in nature. But of course, this this issue is, is much more than a medical issue. It's not just something like how to treat cancer or try to cure the common cold. It's whether or not somebody should be allowed to take their own life um, and uh, whether or not people are fully autonomous in their decisions to do so. But that's a, a huge thing to take into consideration is the incredible amount of faith that people do have in the medical community. And and in many cases, it is um, well-founded. I, when I go to my doctor, I trust that my doctor is going to prescribe the right things that are going to help me with whatever problem that I generally have. It's good to have faith in people who have studied a long time to be in practice and to practice medicine. But this is a moral issue. And when it comes to that, I think it, it helps to remind people that, hey, you know what, this isn't just a medical issue. This is much more than that. And to illustrate to them what exactly the larger consequences of uh, assisted dying laws are, and that it does extend beyond just what happens in the hospital room. So those are uh, my thoughts on episode 57. I do encourage you to go listen to it. And speaking of that episode, of course, I do have a message on the flip phone today. 
Hi, I'm calling the flip phone. I'm just calling about the interview with Sir Vince Cable and what he calls assisted dying. And what he really needs to do it is call it what it is, assisted suicide. And I do, one of my concerns is I know a lot of people in the special needs community, and some of them have no concept of death, and they would agree to suicide without fully understanding what would happen to them. He also said they would put it in the hands of doctors to make decisions. The problem is that I know personally of OBGYN that said that if they had a child that was born with special needs and they needed life-saving, they would not offer that, and that is just a concern there. And if a person does want it in their life and the doctor says no, all they would have to need to do is to find a doctor who would say yes. And you can always find someone to agree with you if you look hard enough. And I just believe this is a slippery slope that will start off with the right intentions and morph into something that will take the life of those that people will feel that cost society too much to keep alive. And I just think that once they vote for this, it's just not going to end. And I know his concern is this wasn't going to be like Denmark, but they're going to be right there like them. And they're not going to take the value of life. And that's all I need to flip about. Thanks. Bye. Well, someone felt strongly about this episode. Yeah, I do see where she's coming from about the issue of people with special needs. Now, I I think Vince Cable would argue that uh, people with special needs would would not qualify for this, but but then again, you know, if if they had a terminal illness and they were six months out, um, would they? You know, if they were shown to be lucid, I think most most people in his in his camp, the the moderate camp, would say no. Those people uh, would not be allowed to do this because they can't properly uh, consent to the procedure. Of course. We know that in other countries that have gone down this path, that there are people who are, say, very senile, have dementia, who are are not able to uh, give consent because they are not fully lucid and don't fully grasp what's going on. Um, Some of those people have been euthanized based off of um, previous orders that they had given. So... It's not a completely unfounded concern, but it is a concern that right off the bat when you're talking about brand new legislation, it's fairly easy for people to brush off and say, no, that's not something that we're dealing with right now. We are only dealing with people who have a terminal illness who are perfectly capable of um, consenting to uh, having themselves euthanized or taking the pill, and we're just going to leave it at that. But the point about having faith in doctors, um, like we were just talking about in the episode highlights segment, is is very important because there are doctors who, you know, they, they're not a, a homogenous group in terms of the things that they believe, especially um, when it comes to the special needs community. That is definitely a concern. And should laws uh, branch into that territory or, or um, cases branch into that territory where they are considering whether or not to allow somebody with special needs to do that, that is absolutely 100% something that needs to be front and center in the conversation. Because as she said, you can pretty much always find uh, a doctor who's willing to give you what you want. And that is why the argument about safeguards is so important. And ultimately why me, for me personally, um, not just from a theological perspective, but just from a historical 
uh, perspective and a logical perspective, I don't believe that the practice um, should be legal at all. But you know what? You, the listener, should make up your mind and listen to both the episode I did with Chris Ford, um, who is a, a, a disability rights advocate in New Zealand who changed his mind on this subject, and then also listen this past episode um, with Sir Vince Cable. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to debunking some conventional wisdom. I think this is an important conversation to have. I know this episode has run a little bit long, but we're having important conversations here. So if you need to stop it and listen to it later, that's totally cool. This case is not clear to me. I'll do your research. Remember when government officials told us over and over and over again that there would not be any problems with the supply chain because all essential businesses would continue to be run all along the supply chain from farm to fork, right? No problems at all. Or or maybe not. Politico reporting. Richard Gubert Jr., Illinois Farm Bureau president said his state's meatpacking companies have fewer employees showing up because of concerns of being too close to other workers. Quote, the industry is backing up on bacon and other products that they put together as cutouts, so they're slowing down and not doing the volume that they had, Gubert said. There's a concern for pork producers because they just can't turn out buildings. They just can't turn their buildings on or off like you can an assembly line, he added. From the time sows give birth to slaughter, quote, it's a nine-month process that started nine months ago. Pigs continue to be born every day, whether they keep the whole capacity. So things are getting jammed up. Now, it could very well be that these workers aren't showing up because of true concern about the, clo- the closeness that they have. Uh, with other workers in their space. Definitely, absolutely. But in other cases, we have seen that it might be the unemployment benefits that are rolling out right now that is luring them away from the workplace. Remember how we talked about in the last breakdown session about the generous unemployment benefits passed by Congress, the the $600 a week, and how uh, Senator Ben Sass and a, a couple other senators tried to restrict them and pass an amendment so that they could not be paid more than what was already their current salary? Well, it turns out those benefits are already having a deleterious effect no matter what Vox tries to tell you. In fact, Mike Pence, interestingly, basically admitted it this week that some plants are having to reduce capacity because of absenteeism. Here's what he said. Uh, I just have the the transcript, he said. Now, that being said, I did hear from the industry today that there have been reports of some plants having reduced capacity because of people having concerns about exposure to the coronavirus. In fact, over the last several days, there's been some incidents of worker absenteeism, and some plants have actually been forced to close temporarily. He goes on to say people in the food industry are vital and that, quote, we need you to continue as part of what we call our critical infrastructure to show up and do your job and know that we're going to continue to work tirelessly and working with all of your companies to make sure that workplace is safe. So in other words, oh, my bad. Poor Mike Pence. Like he probably realizes this and the poor guy is just relegated to begging and pleading and appealing to the the better angels for people to keep going to work even though they'll be paid more to not go to work. 
Please just keep doing your job. Be Americans. You're part of the critical infrastructure. Please show up. It would be funny if it weren't so, so incredibly dangerous. If anything, this convinces me further that we have botched, the, the federal government particularly, has botched this entire pandemic, the response on the economic front. I mean, workers aren't showing up because they are getting more money from claiming unemployment for job loss due to COVID-19, not because they are getting sick or afraid of getting sick. In some cases, yes, that, that's true. But a lot of them are not. And if you've been working this entire time and just now in the past several days, just now you're you're leaving and not showing up, boy, it is awfully convenient timing for you to jump ship because of your absolute grave concern about catching COVID right when the checks start getting handed out. Just awfully convenient. Meanwhile, the Washington Free Beacon was already reporting a week ago that some businesses are hemorrhaging their workforce. Quote, some small business owners say their employees are resigning in part to collect generous unemployment benefits. Daniel Johnson, the owner of a New Orleans landscaping construction company, told the Washington Free Beacon that while he runs a business deemed essential, most of his team has stopped showing up because of the coronavirus, preferring to wait on unemployment payouts. Quote, the majority of my team's last day was March 13th, Johnson told the Free Beacon. We have plenty of work and the city deems us as an essential business because we are a city contractor working on green infrastructure projects. Quote, the employees expressed concern for several reasons, Johnson said, most focused on fear of bringing the virus home to weak family members, young and old. I get it, but our, worker, our work allows them to have substantial space between each other. Most are desperately waiting for unemployment benefits and are not interested in returning to work anytime soon. Very frustrating as an employer. Honestly, it, yes, you can give your employer lots of excuses for why you're not showing up to work. And some of them may have a kernel of truth to them. You know, you know, you've gone to work. You've had conversations with your employer about this, that, and the other thing that needs to get done and why you can't come to work. You know exactly how it goes. But this, this idea that you can just leave your work and effectively lay yourself off to get unemployment benefits just seems like fraud to me. This is fraud. If you quit to get unemployment, even though your employer wants to pay you to work, that's fraud. You are... Uh, to screw over your employer like that is just such a move, right? Even more so because, as uh, Charles Lehman wrote in this piece, the widespread use of unemployment insurance runs the risk that businesses may lose out on government loans guaranteeing their payrolls and could erode employer-employee connections that stop businesses from buckling. In other words, the Payment Protection Program that the federal government is so proud of and that everybody is touting as this wonderful success that's going to save so many small businesses, perverse incentives are pitting that program against unemployment benefits because Democrats in particular insisted that unemployment benefits be so generous that in many cases they pay more than what somebody was earning from their hourly wage or from their salary. Because the Payment Protection Program requires you, in order for you to get your loan forgiven, which the vast majority of, this of these businesses are going to need their loans forgiven, in order for you to get that, 
you have to maintain 90% employment. 90% employment. Okay, so let's say you have 10 employees. Let's say you have two people that do that, right? You know what? I'm just awfully concerned. You know, just I keep watching the news and the cases rack up and up and, and you know, just coming to work every day. It'd just be so much safer for me to stay home. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to show up to work anymore. And I'm just going to wait on my unemployment benefits. So you've lost two of your employees. Now you only have 80% employment because two people have laid themselves off. Well, now you can't get your loan forgiven. There, because there was no nuance to the CARES Act. There was no nuance to the stimulus bill. There aren't any exceptions and the normal multitude of clauses that would have helped a business in this situation do not exist. Trust me, I have looked at the legislation. It is bare bones. Just the, there's, there's nothing there to help these employees. So essentially, according to Lehman, this could convert a short, sharp corona recession into a dragged out economic depression. Absolutely, 100% correct. Honestly, I want to know which senators and House members knew that they were pitting the PPP against the unemployment insurance. I want to know which ones knew that this was going to happen, and I want them held accountable. And you as the voter need to hold them accountable. This is criminal what they are doing to small businesses right now. It's not just about how much it's going to cost the taxpayer and how much it's going to cost my kids as taxpayers to pay for all of this excessive uh, unemployment benefits. It's about the small businesses now that need that money and that need that loan forgiven. And them being screwed over by their employees because the government has provided perverse incentives to do that. I want them held accountable. I want names named. How could they not have realized this? I had my suspicions going in that this might happen, but now we have proof that this is actually happening. So in case you doubt what I'm saying here about your ability to lay yourself off because there is some misinformation going around the internet, as there always is, I found the language from the Department of Labor that confirms this. According to the Department of Labor, the federal government allows flexibility to administer unemployment benefits in cases where, quote, an individual leaves employment due to a risk of exposure or infection or to care for a family member. Let me read that again. An individual leaves employment due to a risk of exposure or infection or to care for a family member. So in other words, if you're afraid of getting the Rona at work, because everybody's a little bit afraid of catching the coronavirus, right? You can lay yourself off and screw over your employer. So that's just fantastic. Moreover, here's something I'd bet you a million bucks you haven't heard anyone talk about. Once news that unemployment insurance threatens loan forgiveness, once that gets out further into the small business community, particularly food service and construction industries, you are going to see a massive spike in hiring of illegal aliens. Why? Because in those industries, hiring a, an illegal labor force and paying them under the table and paying them below minimum wage or minimum wage, but without paying payroll tax, um, 
that has been undercutting other businesses who are doing things on the up and up for years and years and years and years. And many businesses have held out and say, no, I'm not going to hire illegal immigrants. I um, want to do things by the book. I want to follow all of the laws. I want to I do things the right way. Well, now you're being faced with a position of either taking a loan that you know can't be forgiven and that you might not be able to pay back because you might actually go out of business in 10 months or one month or five months or however long because things are really hanging, hanging on by a thread for you. If you know that that is not an option for you to take that loan, what other option do you have to help your business survive but to cut your labor costs and still get a reliable workforce that can't depend or on unemployment insurance? That has to, you know, a person who has to have that job because they don't have a safe. Mark my words. Mark my words. You will see a spike in the, the hiring of illegal workers because of this. And you have the federal government to blame for that. And all of the absolutely moronic members of the House and Senate who put this bill together. By the way, that $600 figure, remember last breakdown session, I, I questioned why was it 600 and not, say, 300 Well, I feel a little bit silly about that because... Simple math, 600 is the equivalent of $15 an hour, 40 hours a week. Hmm, I wonder who came up with that number. Could it be maybe Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or any other Democrat who's been advocating for a $15 an hour minimum wage because they're trying to uh, set the stage for universal basic income? Could it be? Yes, yes it could. The podcast will be back next Friday with an interview with a former anti-vaxxer. I very much look forward to, uh, to recording that episode. Given our current situation with the coronavirus and the scientists who are working furiously on a vaccine, I thought it was extremely important to cover this kind of 180 again. Uh, a very long time ago, I did an interview with Holly Shear, who also is a contributor at the Federalist about how she changed her mind on vaccines and uh, became an ex-anti-vaxxer. I look forward to doing uh, this one again because everybody's story is different and they all have you know slightly different experiences and different uh, facts that led them to make their 180. So do not forget to subscribe to the podcast on your way out. If you haven't already, follow the podcast at 180cast and give me a follow at Georgie underscore Borman, G-E-O-R-G-I underscore B-O-O-R-M-A-N. Of course, that is in the episode description uh, for commentary on politics and culture and many, many opinions from outside of the echo chamber. And if you have a minute, would you help out a freelancer like myself and give the podcast five stars on iTunes? I would like to start out this next year of the podcast with a bang and more reviews would help me do that. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got In the middle of the struggle, Executive producer, Kevin McCullough. Music by Ricky Crack. Who I am, what I need, who I've got In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got.
to be 